Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, and today I'm blessed and honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Vot Ben Bekum. He is Emeritus Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Groningen University in the Netherlands. We'll be discussing his new book, The Religious Poetry of El Azar Ben Yaakov Habavli of Baghdad of the 13th century, published in Leiden by Brill, 2023. Vaut, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with you today. Thank you, Ari, for having me. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that catalyzed the scholar you'd become as an adult? Yes. Uh, my name is Wout van Beckham. I am born at the 21st of May, 1954, in a small town called Binschoten, which is in the province of Groningen. This province is situated in the northeastern part of the Netherlands. So it's not far from the German border. And you have the same name, Groningen, for the province and for the capital of the province. So when I finished my gymnasium, which is the classical education with Greek and Latin, and many other topics. You can go to study in the city of Groningen, which has a university, and that university also had a so-called Institute of Semitic Languages and Cultures, including Egyptology and archaeology of the ancient Near East. When I say this, it sounds already to me as a very long time ago, but At that institute, where I started in 1972, you would get languages like classical Hebrew, which is biblical Hebrew, classical Arabic, including Quranic Arabic, and then also Aramaic, like 
biblical Aramaic, uh, reading Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, and some Syriac. Syriac is mostly New Testament. It's still the church language of the Syriac church. And even a little bit of cuneiform language, which was Akkadian, so-called Babylonian. So this was a lot of languages, but I liked languages. I liked texts. I still liked them mostly, but we had to confine. So I confined into languages like Hebrew in different stages, the rabbinic, medieval, also modern. And Arabic was mostly medieval and some modern literary Arabic. So that's the picture of being at the Institute of Semitic Languages. And this is how it started off, student, and then uh, time in Jerusalem, 1977-1979, and then becoming student assistant. And that's how you get into academics. What inspired you to engage with this book project? What message does your book convey to readers? This book, uh, uh, which now came out, Religious Poetry of Elazar Habavli, is almost also to be considered as a spin-off of an earlier book with an edition from the same poet, the same composer of all his so-called secular poems. So you could actually consider both books as a twin. We can talk later about what is secular and what is religious. How would you like to make a distinction? But you're talking about one and the same personality. And this all started with earlier literature from a person called Jacob Mann. And this Jacob Mann already had included in his books a number of poems by this Elazar. And another person called Chaim Brody, who is a chief editor, who is a main editor also of many other uh, collections of poems, who also had an found a manuscript in New York in the Adler collection of the Jewish Theological Seminary. And that was like one piece of secular compositions of this poet. And he writes in his book that he is very frustrated by the fact there is actually another compliment in Leningrad. And he can't reach it. He can't uh, get it in order to read it, but he was aware of it through a Russian scholar, Russian Jewish scholar, Harkavi, who knew about the manuscript, and there were a lot of compositions also in that one, and he could not edit it together with the American manuscript. So that triggered me in a period when the microfilms of these manuscripts from Leningrad, later St. Petersburg, came to Jerusalem, and there I could consult the manuscript. So that's how it actually evolved into that first book based on one manuscript, and then all the, well, if you would say it rudely, all the leftovers, and mostly religious, or, or, or at least close to something that you would call religious poetry, came much later. 
this is more or less the survey that I can give you. What are the primary themes in your book? Does your book advance any particular arguments regarding the poet? The, the, yes, the main themes are um, uh, certainly uh, have to do with um, the relationship between uh, man and God in a specific way. It's almost like a search of God, and it's also very much um, also concentrating on the Godhead, so to speak. So it's not just, let's say, completely liturgical according to a calendar of festivals and special Shabbatot or special Sabbath. It is it is more than that. He has a certain... Uh, he has a certain feeling for, uh, uh, yeah, you could call it mystical or you could call it pietistic, the relationship between man and God. And he seems to have reasons to do that for that matter. This is certainly one of his main themes. And then you come to um, sub-themes like uh, uh, the situation of people who want to attain more knowledge about God, who want to more proximity uh, with God. These are the elements which are being wrapped up in Jewish terminology, uh, uh, which seems to be around already a longer time in his environment in Baghdad or in um, urban Judaism, in urban Jewish communities like Baghdad, Cairo and Damascus. So that's the framework you could uh, mention and then you have all kinds of um, of uh, other elements which come to it which you could call conventional because poetry has a very long history in the hebrew tradition in jewish tradition and he is of course not entirely detached from it so he's not a loner uh, he is also connected to his community and to uh, Liturgy, for that matter, so that's also part of of his of his affiliation, so to speak. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Uh, there is, of course, an, um, a context to be mentioned. The context is that we are talking about a Jewish community that existed for such a long time in the city of Baghdad or in the vicinity of Baghdad. You only have to think of the Gaonim, who were, of course, mostly situated in cities like Sura and Pumbedita and Nahardea. It's all in the same region. It's all in the same country, you could say. So there is a long-standing tradition of Jewish presence and Jewish culture going on in Iraq. And this is, of course, uh, important to mention. I would say the overall message is understanding in modern times for the relationship between Jews and Muslims. And you can say, okay, Jew, Jew, Judaism is a minority culture and Islam is the majority culture, but there, there is a lot of um, cooperation. There is a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, symbiosis between the two, historical, cultural, 
and then at a certain moment also religious and uh, juridical, you can say, halachic as well. So that's for me a very interesting point to make that people can read this book. You are being taken to Baghdad, 13th century, and you learn from it how these groups and how these people live together. It's a real coexistence with an outcome in poetry, language, and um, yeah, uh, uh, understanding the world at that specific moment. That is what I would like to convey to the readers. What does your book teach us about medieval Hebrew poetry and hymnology? Uh, such a book like this one is, of course, in that sense, a little bit episodic. It's a little bit offside. And I can explain you why. Because Baghdad was a very important city until the fatal year of 1258. In 1258, and apparently not everybody was very much prepared to that, the Mongols reached Baghdad. And the Mongols destroyed the city uh, uh, in uh, completely. So nothing was left of this long Abbasid rule of Baghdad and the enormous um, central position the city had in that uh, part of the world. And the Mongols really annihilated everything and everybody. So many people lost their lives. So you ask me this question, and then I have to look through this year and through this fatal date in order to see what happened there before. So it's much harder to reconstruct, and it's much more difficult to understand what was going on in that city before 1258. Baghdad never recovered from that enormous blow that the city got in 1258. Baghdad is, in, as a matter of fact, the city of 1,000 and one nights. It's the real, um, uh, even in those days, people could look back at the history of caliphs who had an enormous uh, richness and uh, luxury, and they attracted many scholars and poets to the city. And this was already in Al-Azhar's days, three, four, five hundred years ago. But that, um, for us, the researchers, it's difficult to look back and to see in what kind of world Al-Azhar was really living. So that's part of the answer. What kind of city was Baghdad in the 13th century? Where and when was Rabbi Elazar born? Can you describe the geography of the milieu that he was born into? We do not know exactly when he was born. It seems to be around um, um, something like 1191, 1192. It's not very sure. Um, the milieu must have been a Jewish community with certainly a lot of self-consciousness. 
also some self-pride, absolutely. It was absolutely present. Um, I think they were very well aware of all kinds of information with regard to Talmud, uh, Midrash, Halakha, Bible, of course. Um, there is no lack of, of knowledge in that enormous city. And there is a message from a major Spanish poet, a major Andalusian composer, Yuda Al-Kharizi, who uh, composed a famous book called Tachkemoni. And at a certain moment, he also um, reaches Alexandria. And there he says, I have met a young guy called Elazar Hamevin. He uses a Hebrew word, Hamevin. And he talks about his poetry. He said, well, it's okay, but he can do better. But, you know, he says some of his poetry is fine, but this is typical Yehuda Al-Kharizi from Andalusia criticizing his colleagues in the East. He does it all the time, his book, Tachtamani. But we are very happy with this information because apparently Elazar, at a young age, this could have happened around 1215, was on his way to Alexandria. And now some hypothesis comes in and you said, why would he be in Alexandria? Then reading the, his poetry and understanding that he is going in the direction of pietism and spiritualism, um, it can occur your mind that he was on his way to Cairo, to Fustat, in order to meet nobody less than Abraham, the son of my, Moses Maimonides. So Abraham Maimonides was a person who was also very pietistic and, and, and very ritual in his uh, action, and in his uh, religion. And that is what you could call Sufism, Sufi practice. So I like to believe that um, his travel to Alexandria at, at a young age was... Um, on his way to Cairo in order to meet Abraham Maimonides. And I have a little bit of proof for it because he wrote a few praise songs for Abraham Maimonides and makes him actually his personal hero. So there you have some information about the start of his life. And he certainly returned to Baghdad where he got a living out of writing many praise poems. And these praise poems are for functionaries or rather dignitaries in the Jewish community. Those people always have double names. They have an Arabic honorific name, like the hope of uh, the state or the, the son of the state or uh, something like that, and a an Hebrew name. So he was actually maybe also earning his money by writing many praise poems for dignitaries in the city. And this is also helpful in understanding who are all these people over there? What are their functions? What are their professions? You get some information out of it, although that can be found also in uh, other documentation, which has been um, described by somebody like Shlomo Dov Goitain, 
the great Goitain who wrote his book, A Mediterranean Society, because many letters also reached Cairo, Fustat, and were stored over there in, this, in the famous Geniza. So there you have um, an addition. I would see my book and call my book also as some kind of an addition, an addendum to everything that has been said about the Baghdad Jewish community in the first half of the 13th century. But on the other hand, he was a scholar, because also there is a treatise on Hebrew poetry and poetics, very specific poetic means he is describing, like how are you going to make the right meter for a poem? What are the best uh, qualities of poetry and what are possibly the bad qualities of poetry, although unfortunately that chapter has been lost. So it's a it's a fragment treatise, but it shows you that he was an absolute scholar in Hebrew language and linguistics, and he know and he knew everything about Hebrew poetry and poetics. But if I say poetics, you also have to include everything what comes from the Arabs. So this is more or less my description or yeah uh, um, my impression of the man what were the characteristics of the jewish community in baghdad at the time when rabbi elazar was alive i would say that this was a community in which rank and position played a major role i cannot otherwise describe it because it must have been a multi-layered community in which elite and elitistic behavior was there and, and scholars, rabbis, um, um, culturally developed people certainly belonged to an upper layer. And as usual, you do not get that much information about the lower layers, but it was an, a, a multi-layered community and I would believe that this was more or less the same as with the larger community of the Baghdadis in the, and the Muslims, the Arabs, and the, the Sunnites, the Shiites, the Persians who were in the city. And it must have been parallel, more or less. But this is a, a community of ranks, positions, and status. I would believe so. How does Rabbi Elazar's poetry reflect trends in Hebrew language, linguistics, and grammar in the Arabic-speaking world of the Middle Ages? Can you comment on this in regard to rhyme and meter in his poems? Yes. You can say that uh, Elazar is mostly a very much um, conventional in his application of rhyme schemes, of uh, metrical schemes. So in that sense, uh, you would say that he is very much in the tradition of Hebrew poetry throughout the Middle Ages. It, it sounds and it looks like what has been written and composed by many others. On the other hand, um, it has to do with the genres he selects. And there is one genre which is called the girdle composition, the girdle rhyme, muvashah in Arabic is actually a girdle, a belt, so to speak, which has to do with 
different verses in which you have different rhymes and they gird around the strophe, so to speak. It's a little bit technical, but these um, so-called Muvashaha hymns were very popular in the streets. So they were actually always sung. They were melodious. So I think in that genre, he was um, trying also to express his Hebrew language and grammar in a rather, um, yeah, in a rather um, visible way, in a rather obvious way. So he's not, it's not a person who is mystifying with his words. He wants to be clear. And actually, to, in, to some extent, I would call it a simple idiom. It's not very hard to understand him. It's not the language which is the puzzle, it's the message which is the puzzle. And that's that's what is so intriguing about his poetry, because the Hebrew, and I tried, of course, also to, uh, to, to transport that into English, into proper English, is that 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 is not the linguist problem, but it's the message problem. So he was very well versed in grammar. He knew everything about classical and biblical Hebrew. You do hardly see any features from rabbinic literature or midrashic literature. So he's in that sense very close to Bible. And this makes sense that um, composers, Hebrew composers, want to be as close as possible to Bible. This does not um, avoid the fact that he has some kind of a personal lexicon. So he uses words from classical Hebrew, but gives them a different meaning. I mean, I give you an example. You have the example of Sheol. Sheol means actually netherworld or underworld or, or something like that. For him, it is simply a word for world. The same happens also with Teveil. So you do have these, you, you have some kind of a personal lexicon. Uh, if you want to know it, then you can use it all the time. But that's only a very small part of his, of his language and grammar in poetry. But he is certainly not a person who imitates the early hymnists, which have, of course, um, made an enormous contribution to synagogue liturgy, uh, the Paitanim they are called, and I'm talking about Palestinian Paitanim like Yanai and Kalir, but also a person from Iraq like Sa'ad Yagaon. Sa'ad Yagaon is, of course, a very interesting man from the ninth century who has written poetry that you hardly can use it in liturgy because language is awfully difficult. And Elazar is not in that mood, so to speak. I would say that even his secular compositions are more um, complicated than his religious poems, which are being edited in, the, in this book. You write as follows on page 12 about the Muwashaha as a liturgical song or religious hymn is also determined by the effects of poetic meters. It is expected to be maintained throughout the composition. Although metrical shifts per strophe often occur. Fo following 
his Andalusian predecessors, El Azar, made creative use of the liberties of the genre in choosing variations of standard meters, and in many cases, a metrical variant was applied distinct from the classical examples. The majority of El Azar's Mawashahat have been modified meters, have, have modified meters and combinations of verse feeds that are similar but not equal to classical Arabic and Hebrew meters. The use of alternating meters gives the impression that El Azar was not as limited by strict metrical criteria as by the organizing principles of strophic division and rhyme. Can you say more about the above? What is a mawashaha? What is distinct about El Azar's mawashahat? Right. Uh, I mentioned um, the name before. So this is the so-called girl the rhyme composition. But what you are reading is, of course, very intriguing because it shows you that there are rules for Hebrew poetry, mostly deriving from Arabic poetics, to something like metral, metrical schemes. Well, I can tell you, actually, metrical schemes are doing very well in Arabic poetry, but when already in the 10th century they were transferred to Hebrew language and poetry, you had a few difficulties, for instance, with regard to the Shiva. Sometimes the Shiva can be seen as a vowel, and sometimes you have to completely ignore it. And you know this also from Hebrew grammar, but it should be very clear also in poetry. In order to follow classical metrical schemes, classical meters, which were defined uh, by the Arabs. If you uh, are reading about the modification of these meters, even per strophe, so this means that not the entire composition is one and the same meter, then you have already taken a kind of liberty within such a muwashaha in which you have different verses, and these are, let's say, inner divisions in which you can modify these meters. So they do not follow a classical pattern, but there are, yeah, deviations, so to speak. Well, this is a very difficult part of the Mubashacha, that why and how could you simply change meter from time to time? And also, this also has to do with, with uh, rhyme schemes. But they took that liberty because um, this was the fun of writing the so-called girdle composition, of Amuashiaha. And as I said before, only uh, marginally, uh, this is a type of um, composition which must have been very popular in the streets. People were singing it. Because sometimes I came across a reference to a melody. And sometimes you can find it, and that's only rare. But, but sometimes it was even an Arabic melody, which was sung in Baghdad. And that specific Hebrew muashaha was sung in the Jewish community, or in his personal circle, or perhaps even in a synagogue. I am not sure about that, if those those melodies were really being used in synagogues. I believe so, because there are um, uh, indications to it. 
but there is also criticism of this kind of composition. Even Maimonides criticized the use of these kind of street melodies or uh, these kind of compositions, and he would not um, like the fact that Hebrew language as a holy language was used for such a kind of secular composition. So this is difficult with regard to this type of poetry. Um, quite a few people have written about it, but with Elazar, I came across again, uh, you know, some 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 structures and some um, some changes which I did not see before. So he was also quite easygoing in that, and he simply must have liked it a lot. Unfortunately, I must say, perhaps the larger part of all his muwashahat were lost, perhaps even even deliberately torn out of the manuscript, censored perhaps. And this is the most difficult part of it, how this type of censorship could have taken place later perhaps, copyists who omitted these compositions. And it may have to do with the structure, it also may have to do with the message. When it becomes too mystical, too Sufi-like, something like that, maybe not everybody did like it. So you see, there is still a lot to, to, to search for. But this is more or less my answer to, um, to this, this very specific type of composition. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. You write the following on pages 26 and 27, where you talk about the collections where where Elazar's manuscripts are found. You write as follows. The majority of Elazar's liturgical or devotional oeuvre has survived in manuscripts of the Geniza and Firkovitz collections and was unknown until their discovery and disclosure in the 20th century. A smaller part of his pew team can be found in the Mahzorim of the East. In contrast to El Azar's secular poetry, his pew team are in different texts of diverse origins and natures. The Firkovitz collection seems to yield a number of original pew team, culminating in the unique finding of 10 transcribed poems by Ephraim Denard that also originated from a hitherto unidentified Firkovitz manuscript. Otherwise, Elazar's religious verse is primarily found in fragments of paper and parchment that consist of one or more leaves and do not occur in any original bound state. You then 
if I, if you don't mind me skipping ahead, you, you then point out that large parts of El Azar's religious poetry are presently found in the Geniza collections of Cambridge University Library, including the Mosseri collection, uh, the Bodleian Libraries of Oxford, the British Library, formerly the Library of the British Museum, Hebrew Union, Union College, Jewish Theological Seminary of America, and Russian National Library of St. Petersburg. Single PU team appear in manuscripts of the Biblioteca Apostolica Vaticana, Biblioteca Ambrosiana di Milano, and Biblioteca Medicea Orenziana di Firenze. Can you elaborate on the above? Can you comment on the different collections and libraries where El Azar's poetry and manuscripts are found? Yes. Um, first of all, <laughs> if you read it like this, it is really, uh, it looks like an uh, an enormous chaos of manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts which you have to assemble and to bring together in order to get out an edition like this. And you're right in that because um, uh, I hope readers will understand what's going on here. The easy part is, of course, that you would find parts and pieces of his entire collection of poetry in standard libraries like Cambridge, Oxford, uh, and, and um, also in St. Petersburg and New York. And this is, of course, uh, uh, those collections are very well catalogued. Nowadays, we are in a very fortunate position that many of these fragments are being photographed. They are being digitalized in the so-called Friedberg and Nisa project. That's a wonderful system of the of recent years in which you can bring all these fragments together through the computer that's an enormous uh, game of course but um the first part you were reading out is about um yeah let's say the the mahzorim the, the the prayer books for the festivals or even sigurri the the prayer books yeah so a part of it was never transmitted through manuscripts, but those manuscripts are gone, but somehow these poems have found their way into standard Mahzorim. These can be codices, a codex, or printed stuff. And this can be from the days that printing books were appearing, that an Elazar poem could appear there as well. So I could not only rely on fragments of manuscripts in famous libraries, but they also had to go to all these books of whatever written or printed and what is left of it. And then you can see that Elazar has his own diaspora. Those Mahzorim are, of course, according to the Baghdadi rite. It's the Baghdadi ritual. But where did Baghdadi Jews go? Also specifically after the Mongol invasion. And when Baghdad was not so interesting anymore, economically, politically, culturally, those people went to the East. They went to India. And they ended up in Bombay or in Calcutta. Or they even went to China. And uh, so you needed, interestingly enough, to consult Mahzorim from Indian press and Chinese press. 
and then finding one or two or more of Elazar's hymns. Well, that's, of course, very curious, and that's, it's, it's very intriguing. And when you were saying something about the Firkovich collection, yeah, that's this very remarkable person, Abraham Firkovich from the 19th century, who was sent, and also he himself initiated so-called expeditions to the Middle East in order to buy manuscripts from um, courthouses and synagogues of specifically the Karaites. He himself was a so-called Karaite, that is the literalists in Judaism, so to speak. Only Bible people, they do not recognize the authority of the Talmud and the authority of rabbis. That's why they are called Karaites. So he was interested in all these collections, and in these collections, many parts and pieces were hidden, uh, which had to do with poetry, also Andalusia, but also the East. And what also happened is that some of those manuscripts have never been found, but this person, Ephraim Deinart, who lived from 1846 to 1930, he transcribed poems of many people in his own manuscripts. They are now in Warsaw, in Poland. And um, yeah, those poems are not to be found in any manuscript. So it's an enormous search to um, get this all together. This is the situation in which you can see that the Geniza is, of course, very important in order to reconstruct many uh, collections of uh, poetry by many unknown hymnists and unknown poets. But you need to go sometimes a little bit further. And then, thanks to a, a person who loved books and manuscripts like Ephraim Deinard, you even find other poems in his own writing. And we do not have the original source. Uh, this is a small um, description of um, the labyrinths you are entering when you want to uh, reconstruct and to rebuild the poetry uh, collection of one poet. What do Rabbi Elazar's poems say about time? Can you elaborate on how time is presented in his poetry? Yes. First of all, um, uh, in his secular in his secular poetry, he also wrote a lot of lamentations, dirges for people who uh, died. And then he is always talking about time. Time is the same as fate. This is something that he borrowed from the Arabs. The element of time is always very strongly connected to human fate. People are sons and daughters of time. So time is actually the main, uh, or the main instrument in which you are being born, educated. You can uh, you can attain some profession or some living, but at a certain moment you also will die. And time is for Elazar. Um, almost something which has to do with the yeah with mysticism and with the divine because there is no human who escapes the 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 verdict of time so to speak 
So that's what he is saying about time, uh, most uh, in 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 these poems as well. So you cannot you cannot escape your fate. You cannot escape your uh, destiny, so to speak. Although I would not say that time um, is the same as predestination, but it is certainly destination, and he uses it in many. Um, uh, in a variety of um, uh, for lyrical forms, it's, it's lyrics in a way, in order to make clear to people that an attachment to the divine, to God, is also necessary in order to, um, to um, continue. And this continuation of human life is not, is not um, uh, attached to the body, but it's attached to the soul and everybody has a soul. And as you know, soul is of course a philosophical term. And that's how the soul poetry is also very strongly represented in his, um, in his collection. So that's, that's his way. It's, it's a philosophical concept for him in a way. And at the same time, it's an existential concept. On page 46, you, you write the following. The characterization of a man or woman's life cycle into 10-year stages in both Hebrew and Arabic literature and poetry provides a stimulus for Al-Azhar to apply the same decennial format in his composition without overemphasizing the profanity of this motif. The first verse also seems to tap into this tendency by presenting men as creations of God, who in many ways do not realize their vain and temporal circumstances. The decennial division of human existence in El-Azhar's version is not just entertaining, but intentionally serves a moralistic didactic purpose. In both the Hebrew and Arabic traditions, the message of the inevitable of the inevitability of man's aging and decay is equally apparent. It may have taken El-Azhar little effort to integrate this motif into his composition for any liturgical purpose. Can you elaborate on this passage for us? Yes, sure. Well, in the first place, um, you have already used the term decennial division. It's a little bit a strange term, but it means that in poetry, um, a human life is being described per 10 years. And uh, if you allow me, I would like to give you the example of uh, El Azar from his own poetry. Sure, please. So uh, also in order to make this passage clear, he writes the following poem. People satisfied with the image of their creator have gone into a land they do not know. A string of eloquence and pearls of speech filled their mouth. Their words have been impetuous. Men who gently ventured to set foot on earth, they will be brought down to scabs. Those who sat on royal thrones they bowed to the ground and were subdued. And now he starts to make the division. The 10-year-old, so much involved in worthless things, is misled 
by the pitfalls of youth or the 20 year old caught in the ropes of love is hit by the force of love. The 30 year old filled with compassion for his children, delighted and amused by them. The 40 year old advanced in years the early grayness of his side locks breaks forth. The 50-year-old, his eyes no longer shine. His ears are very bothered by deafness. Reaching the age of 60, your achievements have been eradicated from your heart. I say to the 70-year-old, Pack your belongings for exile. The chariots of death are approaching. 80 year old, you have the strength, but you are quiet. Your life has already passed. Mourn the 90 year old, because the grinder sees and the keepers of his lofty house tremble. Those more than 90 are considered dead. They do not hear and do not know. These are the outer fringes of human ways when days are fulfilled and life on earth satisfied. There are those who die in the womb and children who lose their lives before they are born. And while still in their prime, they were snatched away. Before they unsheathed, they are swallowed up. So wake up, you simpletons, from your foolish sleep, listen to wise counsel and do not ignore it. The white hairs on your head are calling. Get up and set out for the netherworld. You do not listen. Hurry up, rise from the miry pit before you will be too late and drown too. Well, this is Elazar's poems on the decennial, the vision of human existence. And as you can see, this is a motive. This is how you can um, uh, use it in many different ways in poetry. But he uses it very clearly for moralistic purposes. And you should be aware of your vanity. So this motive is, I think, it's, it's in world literature. In many ways, you can find it even in Shakespeare Shakespeare drama plays. That's also very interesting to uh, notice. Um, so this is uh, also being uh, derived from uh, the Mishnah. You find it in Perikeya, the, the sayings of the fathers. At five years of age, the study of scripture, attend the study of Mishnah at 13, subject to the commandments, like the Bar Mitzvah, of course. At 15, the study of Talmud. At 18, the bridal canopy. At 24, pursuit of livelihood. At 30, the peak of years. At 40, wisdom. At 50, able to give counsel. At 60, old age. At 70, fullness of years. At 80, the age of strength, gevurot. At 90, a bent body. At 100, as good as dead and come and gone completely out of the world. It's in the Mishnah. So now you can um, ponder thoughts, the thought about from whom he is borrowing. But I think it's a beautiful 
makes from uh, Arabic presentations of this ages of these ages of men and Hebrew presentations. So he's standing here in a motive tradition, and he uses it for his own purposes, of course. But um, I would say I'm very happy to have this poet or piyut also in this collection because it shows his um, his uh, part of being part of of literary culture. I hope I have explained it in this way. Thank you. That was beautiful. I really appreciate it. What does your book teach us about Jewish-Sufi relations in the Middle Ages? As you have noticed, I was a little bit, and I am a little bit reluctant mm -hmm. in using the word Sufi bluntly for Hebrew poetry of El Azar. But in mm -hmm. a way, I have to... Um, I have to uh, uh, concede to the fact that this is very close to Sufism. Sufism is, of course, Islamic. Islam, Sufi Islam is not a sect. It's not a separate movement or something like that. It is part of uh, Islamic devotional life. I would call it devotional. By the way, I can actually reveal a secret to you. I was in the first um, part of making this book actually uh, tempted to call the book the devotional poetry of Elazar Abafi. But I thought that's too much stress on this specific effect in the specific references to what you could call Sufi um, belief and Sufi practice. So that's why I chose for religious poetry as a more general term. But it's very interesting to see that this is more or less what he is um, using in his poetry. And I believe he derives this from uh, treatises in uh, that part of the world during the first half of the 13th century, specifically those from Abraham Maimonides. Because Abraham Maimonides has written a book which is called The Book of, of Worship, you could call it, Kitab al-Ibadah, Sefer Ha'avodah. And this is all about religious practices like um, a, a, a vigil in the night, um, bowing down during prayer, which is at the same time Islamic and also has some Sufi element in it. And he defends it by saying Muslim Sufis have a practice which they have actually borrowed from the ancient Israelites. So it's our practice. It's our custom. The Sufis do it and we Jews can do it at the same, in the same way in the cities of Baghdad and Cairo. This is how Sufism comes in, so to speak. And I think many words, many verses are, in that sense, both Sufi and pietistic, and that's why you can say it. I hope that that is clear now. What do Elazar's poems say about listening as a practice and as a phenomenon? Can you elaborate? Um, I think that most of his poems were um, certainly being um, written for for an audience, 
uh, that has to do with a certain rhythm. It has to do with a certain uh, speed you can also use. So if you read it in his Hebrew, it's in a way it's catchy. You could call it catchy. Uh, people would certainly remember lines from his uh, poetry, from his compositions. The only question which remains is which poetry was really used in synagogue because the Baghdadi synagogues already had a very rich liturgy with many, many poems which were already revered by tradition. So I was, I'm wondering to what extent Elazar could add to a current liturgical practice in the synagogues he was attending or visiting. So I have the tendency to believe that some of his poems were maybe used in, in, in private circles, in so-called Jewish, Judeo-Sufi circles. Could very well have been the case. Um, this is difficult to answer, and there is no conclusive answer. But it's more or less paraliturgical. And then people would listen. Maybe he would also recite them, them himself. He would um, sing it himself. Who knows? But others would have sung it too. So this is my maybe too um, idealistic picture of the usage of his poetry. Uh, the other element is that you cannot exclude the fact that maybe part of his poetry was written and never been read aloud. If that had, you have, you need a chance to do that at a certain point. But there is a reason to believe that part of it was certainly around all the time. And there is one poem in the book, which is still an, an integral part of many liturgies in Judaism. So it's in Baghdad, it's in Corfu, it's in Yemen, especially Yemenite liturgy has conserved one specific poem of um, Elazar, which is uh, known by many people. So it's called, uh, the poem is called Matai Vusar, and that's actually a very short poem. If you would like me to read it, I will read it. Sure, please. And it says, um, when shall the good news come to the people whose eyes are like a beggar? The year of salvation is nigh, and the Redeemer shall come to Zion. Imprisoned, dispersed, slaves to their masters, together hear the good news. This is the year of the Redeemer. You shall not abandon your people forever in their exile. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Oppress their oppressors and contend with those who contend with them. Pour out your wrath on Esau and Ishmael. Build my temple, my holy domicile, and my inner sanctuary, and establish in your kindness Yenon and the altar. You are high among the high ones. Gather our scattered people to Zion, and you shall be like the Jew to Israel. And this is being found in a um, festival, Mahzor, but also in many other manuscripts and the like. And um, yeah, this could have been, it. I think it's now being 
sung mostly for, um, I think, Simchat Torah. So you see, it has a clear liturgical function, and it's all around in uh, different um, liturgies. Uh, I have also found it even in a little Jewish liturgy of Corfu, the island near the coast of Greece. So this is a very clear example of liturgical use until this very day. This book is devoted to Rabbi Elazar's religious poetry. You've pre previously published a volume of and on his secular poetry. How are his secular and his religious poetry interrelated? What are the advantages and disadvantages of the terms secular and religious as applied to his poetry? Yes, that's um, um, uh, uh, actually Elazar is the challenge. Perhaps also the um, the one who challenges this division we the researchers we the modern scholars are making between secular and religious. Uh, in earlier years, it was also called profane and religious. Maybe we should be very careful about that. Uh, there, is an, there is an element of fluidity here involved. I mean, if you are reading secular poems, it does not mean that God or Jewish tradition or Torah or Halakha are completely excluded. If you are reading religious poems, it does not mean that there is no so-called secular motive involved, like the one we have seen. The ages of man is not specifically religious as a motive, but it is um, being elaborated as a religious motive with, you know, a posteriori, some backing from Mishnah and even from the Bible. There is also a psalm verse writing about phases of life. But it shows you we, we should be careful about it. And I'm actually uh, um, someone who would like to, the um, division, which was made by the British scholar Raphael Lewy in his book on Ibn Gabirol. And he calls religious poetry religious and secular poetry, he calls it social. And I do like it in a way, this element of social poetry which has to do with society, with, with the world you're living in, and with everything what is happening in that world, and religious, which has a certain destination. So it has to do also with purposes. Most scholars in modern times have actually looked at the division in terms of purpose. And we have explained that Elazar is difficult when it comes to um, the destination of his uh, poetry, but you have other hymnists, and it's absolutely clear that all his, all their hymns and all uh, their work was intended for synagogue practice. And you're talking about religious poetry, sec. You don't have to discuss it. But he actually is someone who you can you can still um, you can still discuss this problem. That it's not the finished. A final answer cannot really be given. Can you comment on the relationship between Jewish poetry and Jewish philosophy and the medieval Islamic world? How are poetry and liturgical hymns, piyutim, and other forms of poetic writing interconnected with themes and questions in philosophical writing 
in this context and period? Uh, philosophy, of course, uh, and everybody knows this, philosophy is something that actually comes from the Greek, but uh, the, the, it, it's known that when the Arabs uh, conquered the Middle East, and much more than that, and when Islam was established as a religion, um, Arabs were very much inter interested in philosophy, so they translated many of the Greek books and many of the Greek philosophers. And as when Jews were part of this greater Islamic world, they would certainly also um, get in touch and get acquainted with so many of the Greek philosophers through an Arabic lens. It would go via the Arabic line. This is very much visible in the writings of Maimonides, specifically in his Guide of the Perplexed. You can find there this sub-layer Greek and then the Arabic mediation, so to speak, but there's also a lot of additional Arabic philosophy involved. So Jewish philosophy is some kind of a branch of, of a larger philosophical stream or a, a, a group of philosophical schools, and that, that uh, there are main elements to be found in that. A main element is the, the issue of the soul, which we have mentioned before. Another element um, can be something about um, uh, existence, life, uh, earth and heaven is involved there. And this is what you can see, and I would call it philosophical ingredients in Jewish poetry. The one who is most outspoken in his uh, use of Jewish philosophy or Judeo-Arabic philosophy, if you like, is Shlomo Ibn Gabirol. That's the Andalusian poet. And uh, Ibn Gabirol's poetry became very famous. He was very, he lived a very short time, but his poetry was famous. It is, it's very rich, it's very uh, strict in its prosody, but he is absolutely making the combination between philosophy and Jewish religion. And this was being imitated, as a matter of fact. So I am not sure if you could call Elazar uh, entirely original in using philosophical motives. Um, many predecessors did it. The same applies also to us. You have lots of uh, astronomical uh, features in his poetry, but many others did the same. So this is how it is being um, inserted into his poetry. Motives rather than complete theories, but it belongs to a, a mainstream Jewish thinking about uh, specific philosophical concepts. There's a, another quotation I'd be curious to ask you about, which is on page 26. Uh, you write as follows. Um, a large part of El-Azhar's distinct use of the Hebrew language lies in the idiosyncrasies of his lexicon and syntaxis, which can also be found in his secular poetry. His preference of tevel and sheol as designations for world is widely represented alongside olam. To establish the meters, El-Azhar had various prepositions at his disposal sometimes semantically dissimilar from classical Hebrew. 
among which be'ad, meaning in or for the sake of, and ad, meaning to or until, are the most prominent. Similarly, a selection of adverbs, conjunctions, negations, relatives, and their correlatives, interrogatory or exclamatory adverbs, considerably broadened the possibilities to meet the requirements of the metrical patterns. Can you comment and elaborate on the above? And can you say more about grammar and El Azar's poetry? Yes, um, as you can see, he uh, has a large lexicon at his disposal. This means that when he wants to uh, make verse, by the way, the word poet is a Greek word which means making. So uh, poetry is actually you make verse, you make language. Then he needs to choose words which fit into a metrical scheme. Um, so uh, it makes his life easier, so to speak. But you need to stretch semantical range a little bit sometimes. So that's why you would find a different connotations for standard Hebrew words. It's actually squeezing words into a metrical scheme. This is what is actually happening. That's why this selection of all kinds of adverbs and conjunctions and uh, uh, of all kinds and types could make his life easier in order to make a perfect verse line. This is what it is for. So it's not entirely according to a standard classical grammar, but it's also not so far away from it. It's, it's, it's not a new invention, so to speak. Other hymnists in earlier ages would really invent complete neologisms, complete new words. He is not so much an invent, no, he's not so much a, a maker of new words, but he squeezes all kinds of words into the scheme of the first. That's what it's all about. He was very uh, good and very uh, uh, well aware of Hebrew grammar. That's why um, he wrote this specific on the use of Hebrew language poetry, that, that, the, that fragment that I have mentioned. So he must have been an, um, a well-known scholar for that. But this is how uh, a, a, a composer uh, yeah, um, manages his language and his lexicon and his syntax for making verse. That's, what I, that's the best what I could say about it. In the time remaining, would you like to comment on any of Elazar's other poems? Would you like to interpret any for us that have not yet come up in our dialogue? Well, as a um, maybe also as some kind of a um, um, closure, sure, we could go to um, a poem in which I would hope um, many of the things that we have discussed come together. So let me um, read that, and it's a um, poem again. I don't know for what purpose he wrote it, but. It is as follows. At least it has some liturgical elements. Sure. How shall I direct my prayer to you and declare your mighty acts? How? 
and the soul of living shall praise your name. I desire and wish to come to an understanding of you. I shall command the eye of my intellect to behold your image. When my heart thirsts for the dew of your law, then I shall drink. I shall be the gatekeeper of your courts with thanks and praise. I shall declare your power to the old and young. Around you stand hosts by ranks and positions, sometimes ascending and sometimes descending, also revolving. When they move around in the vaulted heaven, they reveal at set times Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, also Mercury and Moon, and Venus and Sun, confessing that you are the creator of all. You have distributed your brilliant knowledge to pure souls. You have made known your secret in heaven and on earth. To your holy people, you made them hear your voice from the heights. You satisfied their desire with goodness in a waste howling wilderness. You appeared in your shining glory to those worthy and unworthy. Men of understanding have much to explore and to examine in themselves. You have the signs like heat and cold from which you cleave their basic shape in gazing lights and firmaments still present. Because you are calling to each generation from the outset, rolling up the darkness for light and sunlight for the night. And this is this specific poem. Thank you for sharing that. I genuinely appreciate it. You're welcome. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you comment on your current research now that this book is behind you? What are you working on next? Uh, in the meantime, and this is quite different, I would say, I have um, dared to take the task of translating the entire Guide of the Perplexed by Monmonides into Dutch. Wow. I'm working on it already for three years. Part one is almost finished, and this is, of course, a very draft kind of translation. Part two and three are for the next 15 years, perhaps, eight years. I don't know. I don't want set a time, so I don't want to be a child of time in that respect. But it's an enormous exercise, and I translate Maimonides from the Judeo-Arabic, not from the Hebrew. Um, it's already a success. I'm invited time and again to talk about Maimonides and his thinking from the language, from, from using his original language. But of course, you understand that translating is transferring all these ideas and concepts into a strange language. But Dutch is my mother language, is my native language, so it's an enormous puzzle. But some, but sometimes I feel that this is uh, already some kind of a success in order to clarify Maimonides' reasoning. I would call it much more his reasoning. So this is 
on the track right now. And if you ask about poetry, there is still in my drawer uh, an, an, an amount of dirges of, of lamentations in Hebrew from the 15th century, from the period from 1391, a fatal year in which there were many persecutions of Jews in Spain and Portugal, and 1492, which actually represents the expulsion of the Jews from the Iberian, Iberian Peninsula. So these uh, lamentations, they need context, and some of them I already edited many years ago, but now the bulk of these dirges also should go into an edition, in an edition and uh, being commented and contextualized and so forth. And this will also keep me off the street, as we say in Dutch. Thank you. It sounds like an absolutely marvelous project, and I wish you the, only the best of luck in seeing it to completion. Thank you for all the sacrifice you are investing in that project, your upcoming current project as well as all the sacrifice you invested in this one. It's a tremendous gift to humanity. Thank you. I need your good wishes, and I will go on as long as I live. Thank you. I'm tremendously thankful. You're welcome. To our listeners, I am your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Vogt van Beckum. He is Emeritus Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Groningen University in the Netherlands. We have been discussing his new book, The Religious Poetry of El Azar ben Yaakov Habavli from Baghdad in the 13th century, published in Leiden by Brill Publishers, 2023. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.